Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Balloon Farm and A Question of Temperature, a single in the US in 1967, because we're featuring highlights from the new Grapefruit Cherry Red box set, March of the Flower Children, the American Sounds of 1967. And as ever, I've got the compiler of that wonderful set. David Wells here. Huge welcome. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Such a, a brilliant period to mine, and the US scene quite diverse because you've got a range of sounds here from that bit of psychedelia bit of garage rock bit of folk sunshine stuff so you've got a, a real soundtrack to that wonderful sort of summer of love that's right yes the idea really was to take 1967 and not necessarily just the hippie underground psychedelic stuff but to look at the overall year uh, and to include things like Sunshine Pop and, uh, I say, the Garage Punk and um, singer-songwriter as well. So I think we've got Tim Buckley on there and Tim Hardin, I think. Uh, so, yeah, it's just what I think most collectors would consider to be cool sounds from that year. We started it off so brightly with Balloon Farm, Question of Temperature. They really have thrown the kitchen sink at this one. Yeah, it was a top 40 hit in America. Um I think Mike Appel was the leader. Um, he went on to 
to write songs for the Partridge family and uh, and then handle Bruce Springsteen for the first couple of albums as well. So he did have some kind of um, uh, wider input to the music scene, really. But uh, this was kind of um, his big moment, if you like. I think he said that they used the theremin on it um, after it had been used on Good Vibrations, but the sound is completely unlike Good Vibrations. Is there a link with Melanie's manager as well? Yeah, Melanie's manager come husband, I believe. And he'd um, he'd given them a chance to record with him, and they came up with a question of temperature. And as I say, it was a top forty hit, which we tend to look over these overlook these days, really, when we're talking about what we consider to be nuggets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, Balloon Farm was a, a fairly decent sized hit, and I think later on we got Thirteenth Floor Elevators and the Seeds, both of whom had hits as well. Um, so it wasn't just a kind of cultish thing. And not only have you got hits by artists that some of us may not be as familiar with, you've got some of those major names of the scene, and one of those is the Monkeys, and we've got the, I think this is the cancelled single version of She Hangs Out, haven't we? Yeah, initially it was intended to be a B-side, or at least Don Kirshner intended it to be a B-side of A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, but by then the Monkeys were, were not Nesmith in particular, were agitating about not being allowed to play on their own records, and they insisted that a Nesmith song was on the B-side. I think the original She Hangs Out did sneak out in Canada as the B-side, but then it was scrapped, and the Monkeys later in the year, when they got kind of full control, um, they re-recorded it themselves without the aid of Session Men, but this is the original Session Man version. With uh, the only monkey involved is, is David Jones on lead vocals. And as we often see with the monkeys, there's a, a real songwriting pedigree behind that track? That's right, yes. Obviously, the, the monkeys did have people like Boyce and Hart and Neil Diamond writing songs. And this is written by Jeff Barry and um, I think Ellie Greenwich, although she wasn't initially credited, but um, I mean, lyrically, it is a bit uh, under the arm, as we say. <laughs> uh, it's quite a leering lead vocal from Davy Jones about a young groupie, but uh, probably best not to go into that too much.
So now we have Mothers of Invention and Why Don't You Do Me Right? And this is the Mother's version or attempt to do something that was radio-friendly? Apparently so, yeah. I mean, we are moving from the sublime to the ridiculous, but um, we, we do that quite a lot on this set, actually. Um, so, yeah, Mothers of Invention, um, they're waiting for the second album to come out. and They went back in the studio to record a couple of songs that Frank Zappa thought idiot songs for an idiot audience or something along those lines anyway that uh, he was a bit scathing about the idea of writing pop hits but he came up with why don't you do me right which is actually quite a commercial song and big leg ammo is on the other side so why don't you do me right yeah it was commercial enough to be covered by alternative tv in the late 70s but uh, yeah the idea of of the mothers of invention having a hit record probably wasn't really going to happen but this is a, a good three minutes pop song really at heart Why don't you do me right? Why don't you do me right? 
Next we have Blue Things in You Can Live in Our Tree. And were they the Midwest area? They were from Kansas, yeah. Initially, they were kind of like a folk, rocky, Beau Brummel's bird-style British Invasion band. But uh, by the time of this single in May 67, they'd obviously <laughs> indulged in a few substances, I would, I would imagine. And You Can Live in Our Tree is completely out of its tree, really. And it is the sort of thing you think, well, why would RCA think that was a hit record? But clearly they did, and it came out and um, didn't get anywhere. I mean, that was the wonderful thing about 1967. You, you'd you get labels releasing all sorts of curveballs in an attempt to get a hit. Yeah, I think we, we tend to look back and think of like the, the indie labels having a little bit of success, and then the majors picking up on, on more obscure stuff and making it into hits. But... Um, Blue Things were an RCA band. Like I say, they'd recorded um, an album for, for RCA and then they'd gone off in a slightly order direction and maybe they were still signed up to the label and the label thought had no choice but to put it out. But uh, I think a few months after that, they, they were history. But yeah, I guess I guess it is uh, that thing of throwing enough mud at the wall and somewhere it will stick and maybe RCA thought, thought it would work in this instance. Smell! 
Got Love and KV Durant. Is this the album version as opposed to the single? This is the album version. I mean, we, we tend to overlook it now because most of these major bands, they're based around their albums, really, their appeal. They're standing amongst collectors. But at the time, Electra didn't really put out singles that are over three minutes long. They obviously had this um, feeling that uh, American record stations wouldn't play it. So, so all kinds of things were butchered. But um, they don't normally, American companies don't normally add the single to the albums because it's like a two and a half minute version of a five minute song. And, and this is uh, the way we love. Kvida is not a particularly lengthy song, but it was cut down to be released as a single. But if you use that, then you're then using something which is completely unsatisfactory, especially when people are familiar with the album version. So we've gone with the album version of Kvida, which means what a life. It does. Apparently. Spanish, I assume. Uh, well, it's from Da Capo, so I assumed it might be Italian, but I don't know. It could be. Let's say it's Mediterranean anyway.
So from a one major name, Love, we go to the 13th floor elevators. She lives in a time of her own. And I mean, no compilation from that era, certainly from the American side, is truly complete without a bit of 13th floor elevators because they were a group that evoked psychedelia in, in the early period. Yes, they. I think they were the first band to have the word psychedelic on their business card, January 66, something like that anyway. And yeah, I mentioned earlier about unexpected hit singles, really, uh, when we look back. Uh, and I mentioned the 13th Floor Elevators, and of course, You're Gonna Miss Me was uh, was a, a fairly minor national hit. So they went back in the studio to record the second uh, second album, Easter Everywhere. And She Lives in a Time of Her Own comes from that, but lightning doesn't normally strike twice, and uh, it was pretty much ignored. And it is, uh, it probably doesn't have that kind of sing-along appeal that... Um, you're going to miss me would have had yeah and and, and just a group that now are, are revered despite the lack of single success yeah i i can remember in the late 70s when i was kind of growing up that um rocky erickson um made a, an album for cbs which was fantastic and i think some of us got through the 13th floor elevators through rocky solo stuff but it depends how old you are i guess like all these things and so, yeah, 34 Elevators, I think You're Gonna Miss Me was included on the original Nuggets in 72, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's on the original, as opposed to the late 90s Rhino full CD set. I think that was on the original, and uh, so that gave them a bit, of a, a bit of a following outside of the country, I think, uh, and in, into Europe and England. But, uh, yeah, She Lives in a Time of Her Own is a, is a really nice song, uh, good performance, but like I said, it doesn't have that kind of um, fairy dust magic that uh, You're Gonna Miss Me had, and it didn't really make any impact at all.
So now we have the end. Going to send you back to your mother. <laughs> what a title there. So this was around the lead singer, Russ Sanders? Yeah, he. Uh, they were from Indiana. Initially, they were known as The End with a single D, and then I think they, they had to change it to The End with the two Ds at the end because there was another group called The End. Well, obviously, there were several groups in England called The End, but um, I imagine it's a fairly common name in the mid-60s. So, yeah, this is um, going to send you back to your mother. Great song, really commercial. In fact, it reminds me a lot of um, um, Late 70s Sleep with Mac. Uh, I don't know if I should be saying that, but um, um, because it is a bit snobbery about that sort of thing. But it is kind of like, uh, I can I can imagine Christine McVie or Lindsay Buckingham singing it. And uh, it's a really commercial little song, but it only came out, like I say, on the band's own label. And that's one of the beauties of doing a set like this, is that you can mix in the big names all the ones that people are familiar with, the monkeys. We mentioned uh, 13th Floor Elevators, Love. But you can also put in a band who just recorded a couple of local singles and haven't really been compiled before either. So, yeah, it's a bit of a kick to, to include that sort of thing, especially when it's this good. And so they, they released a few more singles, but then would they just go back to normal life, I guess? Um, I think the... The leader of the band actually died quite early in a boating accident. So um, sadly, that that would have been the case for a lot of bands that they just went back to sort of Civic Street almost after their brush with them, um, you know, the pop world. But um, yeah, there's a slightly um, unusual story involved with the end. Uh, and like I said, I think the guy disappeared mysteriously while on a boating trip many, many years ago. So uh so I don't quite know who else is left. We licensed it from one of the companies who licensed it from the band initially. But uh, yeah, it's a bit of an obscure story, really. But it just goes to show that you can live in obscurity. You can make a single, two singles, three singles, and think nobody's paying attention. And yet here we are, sort of 56 years later, and we're playing it and including it on a new compilation.
another big name here for the scene, The Grateful Dead and The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion. So this was released to promote their self-titled debut album. It was put out, yeah, when the the first album came out, they made a, a local private label single in 66, and then they'd signed with Warner Brothers. They put out their debut album, but at that stage of the game, people would have, as we just discussed earlier, there's no reason why an underground pop group like, say, Jefferson Airplane couldn't have a hit single, which they did, and I guess Warner Brothers thought, oh, great for dead. You know, the Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, despite the title, is actually quite a commercial little pop song. And it did get good reviews in the uh, uh, the trade journals in America. And like I say, it would have sounded good on the radio, but uh, it, it wasn't to be. And, and to be honest, it's difficult to see the Grateful Dead as teen idols. The Seeds and March of the Flower Children. So that this was this post pushing too hard? It was, yeah. They had, um, by this point, they had a couple of hit singles, actually. Um, pushing Too Hard, I think Can't Seem to really Make Your Mind, I got to number 41 or something like that, but still a sizable hit single in America. And um, so two fairly decent-sized hits, and they went on to make a third album called Future, which was kind of their, their psychedelic offering. Very kind of self-consciously psychedelic, I think. Uh, and it kicked off with um, a little spoken intro from Sky Saxon, and then it went under March of the Flower Children. And I have to be honest, we really included this track because it's such a perfect title for the box. I don't think it's one of the seeds' best songs, if I'm honest, but um, it does have that kind of 1967 weirdness definitely attached to it. It does, because in the notes, there's a, a quote from Kim Fowley, and it does seem sort of similar in sound to some of the stuff that Kim was doing in that period as well. 
Well, Kim Fowley was hanging out. Obviously, that's what he did for a living, really, hang out. And so, yeah, he knew Sky Saxon, and he knew a lot of those other guys. Um, Michael Lloyd would be an obvious example. Um, interesting, Michael Lloyd also went on to produce The Osmonds, didn't he? And he was involved with the Partridge family. So we already mentioned Michael Pell from yeah. Balloon Farm. So, so yeah, a lot of them, I mean, even Kim Fowley made a record called Bubblegum. So <laughs> it all kind of um, links together, I think. And uh, most musicians just want to be successful as opposed to, being devoted to a style of music. And I think Kim Fowley was one of those guys. And uh, as I say, he knew uh, the seeds well. Um, and so, yeah, there probably is some similarity. drops and i live in the springtime and this again is this one of the um smaller or self-released labels it's one of the small labels they were a chicago band and i think the song i live in the springtime is best known because it was on the aforementioned um rhino nuggets box set in the late 90s but there's a, an interesting story about this single um it was pressed by an entrepreneur, I think, whose younger brother was in the band and uh, pressed 500 copies initially. But after it was pressed, they realized that they'd left out the drum track. And it's that version which is featured on, on Nuggets. Whereas when they found out their mistake, they immediately repressed it with the drum track and a little bit of additional instrumentation as well and pressed another thousand copies, at which point the, the guy who'd pressed it couldn't afford to do any more. So what we've done is we've used what is actually the second pressing, but it's actually the full version of the song, which which otherwise didn't come out. So, uh, yeah, it's it's quite an odd little uh, thing and quite an odd little story. But uh, again, a really strong song. And it does sound better with a drum track, in my opinion.
Martin Buckley, Morning Glory. So this was from his second album, I think. That's right. I think the first one he pretty much disowned as he was too young. He was in awe of being in the studio and he really got the sound he wanted on the second album, Goodbye and Hello. The first time I came across this was Morning Glory days. It was in the mid-70s when Electra in the UK had like, uh, I was still at school at that point, and Electra had a kind of double-sided hit by each band. Um, I think they did The Doors, Tim Buckley. I think it was a Harry Chapin single as well, which kind of like a golden oldie type series of releases. And um, because at that point, Electra was still almost a guarantee of quality, much in the same way that, say, in the early 70s in the UK, Ireland was. Then I picked up the Tim Buckley single, Morning Glory, and that was the first time I'd heard it. Like I say, that's nearly 50 years ago now. But uh, yeah, just a wonderful song. And again, we've included two or three singer-songwriter things on on this compilation just to show the kind of breadth of talent that was in America at that point and how all these things were kind of shaped a little bit by psychedelia and, and drugs, obviously, in the Summer of Love, but they all also had their own sound. Tim Buckley was working with a songwriting partner in this period as well, wasn't he? That's right. A lot of um, Tim Buckley's songs don't actually feature his lyrics. It's uh, his songwriting partner who had been um, with him at, at school, I believe, at college. And on this occasion, uh, Buckley said to him, write me a song about a hobo. And this is what he came up with. Uh, is, is it Larry Beckett, was it? Yeah, Chapman? Larry Beckett. Yeah. Uh, and Beckett came up with this lyric, and it's fabulous. I lit my purest candle close to mine Window hoping it would catch the eye Of any vagabond who passed it by And I waited in my fleeting house Before he came I felt him drawing near as he neared, I felt the ancient fear That he had come to wound my door and jeer And I waited in my fleeting house Tell me stories I call to the hobo Stories of cold as Stories of old I knelt to the hobo And he stood before my fleeting house No, said the hobo, no more tales of time Don't ask me now to wash away the grime I can't come in cause it's too high a climb And he walked away from my fleeting house Can you be damned, I scream to the hole Leave me alone, I wept to the hole Turn into stone 
So now we have the single version of White Light, White Heat by Velvet Underground. So this was Velvet Underground and Nico album had passed quite a few months before, but this was a number of months before the White Light, White Heat album. Yeah, yeah, the album didn't come out until early 68, but um, by that point, Lou Reed had kind of pushed out Nico. It was always kind of um, landed on them by Andy Warhol. He'd also sacked Warhol as the group's manager, so it was just the basic four who went in to, to make the... Uh, the second album, White Light, White Heat, and that came out in January 68, but initially uh, Verve pressed a single of the title track, which was pressed a couple of months earlier and sent to radio stations. Now, this is, this is what I was saying earlier about the fact that um, some things would come out and they'd either be hits, unexpected hits, if you like, or complete flops, and there's no middle ground. It was very difficult, going back to play things like um, Billboard and Record World and Cashbox, to actually find a review of White Light, White Heat. And nowadays, we we tend to think of the fact that, oh, yeah, these, these magazines covered everything. If it was on a major label like Verve, they would have covered it. Well, they didn't. Interesting. The single is not covered anywhere in any trade journal, late 1967, early 68. And so pretty much everything, I was able to find direct quotes. It's always interesting to find out what the uh, mainstream music press thought in those days. For instance, they thought Grateful Dead might have a hit record. They thought Mother's Invention might. But the Velvet Underground weren't even covered. Gosh. I mean, that's, that's staggering these days to think that they weren't even like slammed like, say, the Stooges were or the first MC5 album. They just were ignored. So, yeah, that's a bit of an eye-opener. There was literally, as far as I could tell, anyway, there was, there was no review of the release of the single White Light, White Heat. So, yeah, uh, again, some people, I think, have thought that this is a flower power compilation, and, and it's not a flower power compilation because no. clearly the Velvet Underground and the Mothers of Invention, people like Everly Brothers, who we'll come on to, they're not flower power bands. It's just how flower power affected uh, psychedelia, drugs, whatever, um, the uh, burgeoning rock underground press, if you like, how it all came together and, and had almost like congealed into one. One hole that had so many different elements to it.
and make it every week. from the Velvet Underground to Tommy Rowe and Paisley Dreams. And this is this wonderful period where Tommy Rowe's material evolves into gentle psychedelia. Yeah, it just goes to show how we're affected by names, really. We've gone from the Velvet Underground to Tommy Rowe, which on one, one, on one level is absolutely ludicrous. But on the other hand, he was working with Kurt Bircher, who is as, as respected these days in some quarters as the Velvet Underground are. Bircher did two albums with Tommy Rowe, and uh, that included Paisley Dreams. Um, which has got sitar on it and everything, and it's a gorgeous flower power thing. But it wasn't a hit, and Tommy Rose said the American equivalent of sod this for Game of Soldiers, and he went and uh, he went and recorded Dizzy instead and Heather Honey and, uh, yeah, one or two others. Jam up jelly type, all that sort of thing. And I love those bubblegum yeah. things, but it's interesting how you can say, okay, that's not a hit, I'm going to try something completely different, which is how he got into kind of flower power in the first place, I guess. Mm. Because there's a much more of a lineage from Sheila and Sweet Pea to, to Heather Honey and, and um, Dizzy than there is. Paisley Dreams is kind of outlier almost. But he's releasing some fantastic albums as well. Yeah, like I say, those two albums from that time, 67, done with Kurt Bircher and also his kind of uh, regular uh, sidemen like uh, Sandy Salisbury, um, people like that. So... Uh, so, yeah, it was just, I would imagine that Tommy Rowe's name might have been a slight drawback in terms of getting critical appeal in the way that, say, the Millennium or Sagittarius do these days.
Hurricane fighter plane, so that they were a, a Texas group. Yeah, that thirteen floor elevators. They were they're from Texas, and a lot of their material is, shall we say, quite challenging. But this, I saw this described as the closest an American band got in 1967 to the first Pink Floyd album, and you can see kind of similarities there. And on top of that, it's got Rocky Oaks and playing organ on this track. It came from the album Parable of Arable Land, and like I say, that's a harder, more difficult listen than this uh, this track is. But that's the benefit of having a compilation. You can pick Absolutely. these gems out. Yeah, I have that one. I'll ignore everything else. I'll have this and I'll have that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Over. Uh-huh. 
six buckets and they are for you They're full of little things that we can do You'll be amused by my hurricane fighter plane So we had uh, Tommy Rowe earlier, so now we have the Everly Brothers and Mary Jane, and I assume they weren't singing necessarily about a woman. No, it is kind of um, pretty obvious, and you do wonder again, looking back, you think, well, were you really expecting the radio to play that? But um, that was from the Everly Brothers Sing, which is their their quasi-psychedelic album. It's got their version of White Shade of Pale on it. It's also got a great track, um, a pre-Nirvana Patrick Campbell Ryan song called Finding It Rough, but Mary Jane was written by their English bass player. And again, it's it's pretty obvious what they're singing about, uh, the redemptive powers of, of marijuana. Um, and I guess it's no different than Tommy Rowe, moving with the times. If you don't move with the times, you're yes, there's news. If you do move with the times, then then you're kind of sometimes laughed at for being, you know, an old man who's uh, trying to jump on the bandwagon. But, again, on its own merits, this stands as a really strong single. It's Bowling Green that was from that period that was a minor hit, wasn't it? Bowling Green was the single before Mary Jane, and that was a hit, and they obviously thought, right, we're back in fashion. <laughs> what are we going to do now? <laughs> so so they, they, covered, uh, they, they recorded Mary Jane, like I say, it was written by their bass player, and um, maybe they thought that would get them sort of in vogue with the young hip kids out there, I don't know. Um, or maybe they were just bored and, uh, you know, wanted to push the boat out a little bit. But uh, like I say, it's, it, it certainly stands up well on its own merits. And um, it's, uh, you know, if it weren't for the lyrics, I think it might well have been a top 40 hit. Terry Slate is an interesting figure because he went on to work with Aha. He was the one who... Oh, did he? ...who discovered them and went went off to manage them. Oh, right. OK, we never know where people will end up, I guess, but... Uh, I think the Everly Brothers had picked him up when they were touring in England, 64, 65, something like that. So they come over here to do the Two Yanks in England album with uh, members of the Hollies. So I assume that's how he, he came into like the Everly Brothers fold. But um, yeah, maybe that should be another compilation. <laughs> <laughs> Names that meant nothing at the time but went on to be highly successful behind the scenes. Clouds of sleep cloud my mind, yeah, and I don't know what we I've got 
We finished the set with um, one of the, the big hits, Young Rascals and Grooving. Yeah, whenever people talk about Summer of Love, they always talk about a wide shade of pale, or all you need is love, or White Rabbit in America. And to me, this has kind of been almost like forgotten. Um, and it was a massive hit everywhere. It's an American chart topper, big hit over here and in Europe. And apparently Jerry Wexler, who was the boss of Atlantic, didn't want to put it out as a single because it's so different from what they'd done in the past. But because they'd been that kind of um, blue-eyed soul kind of thing, Good Loving is probably the one that's best known over here. But Grooving does have a different feel. And I guess you can understand the label head guy saying, don't know, this is a bit of a change of style. To me, it's one of the singles that is most evocative of 1967. Like I say, even though it hasn't gone down in the public consciousness quite as as... as Redley is a wider shade of pale, all we need is love. But it's a, a great song. So, four hours of fantastic material digging into 1967 over in the, the United States, March of the Flower Children. Thank you so much for your time, David. Um, oh, pleasure. As we often know, one of the best years ever in music, and this set um, continues to prove that. Yeah, I mean, having the chance to, to do a 1967 set of American music, you think, well, great, <laughs> where do I start almost? And we were lucky that um, the bigger labels played ball with most of what we wanted. It wasn't much we missed out on. And obviously we, we have other smaller labels who represent uh, more obscure stuff as well. So we were able to put together a pretty um, definitive set of that year. And, you know, if, if you're a collector and you like that kind of underground rock music coming to the fore. I mean, apart from what we've discussed, we've got, I think, Steppenwolf and Vanilla Fudge to show that that year kind of was when things got a bit heavier as well. So... Um, yeah, I think we covered most bases with it, and it was really a lot of fun to do, definitely. Thank you very much. Let's uh, listen to Young Rascals and Grooving. Okay, bye. Down 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.